Valentina Harris is a cookery writer and a television presenter who specialises in Italian dishes. Valentina Harris talked to Michael Barclay about her mother, who was an Italian resistance worker in the war, and her father, who was a British Army officer stationed in Italy. Valentina imparts the secret of cooking the perfect risotto. Anyway, she eventually met my dad, and that's where I got my English accent. <laughs> I think you've actually got uh, some music uh, to represent that anti-fascist resistance uh, during the Second World War. Yes, I have. I've chosen Obella Chow, but there is a second reason for, for choosing Obella Chow, because... It is the song that is uh, traditionally connected to the mondine, the rice pickers of the rice harvesters and weeders of the, the northern paddy fields of Italy. And in the business, I'm known for, as the risotto queen because I, I literally could bore you for several weeks on the subject of risotto. It, <laughs> it's my sort of signature dish and the one I've really studied. So there's two reasons for that. And I've chosen Giorgio Gabir to sing it. There are many, many versions, of course, but I've chosen Giorgio Gaber because he was my mother's favourite pop singer at the time. So here it is, that old Bella Ciao with Giorgio Gaber is the one, yes. Questa mattina mi sono alzato Oh Bella Ciao, Bella Ciao, Bella Ciao, Ciao, Ciao Questa mattina mi sono alzato ed ho trovato l'invasor Oh partigiano, portami via, oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 bel partigiano, portami via, e mi sento di morir. E se io muoio da partigiano, oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 e se io muoio da partigiano, tu mi devi seppellir, e seppellire. Lassù in montagna, oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 e seppellire lassù in montagna, sotto l'ombra di un bel fior, e le genti che passeranno. Giorgio Gaba with Oh Bella Ciao. You know, that can't help but conjure up the image of a, a piazza and lots of tables outside under umbrellas and people all spontaneously singing. Yes, absolutely. It's joyous. It is joyous, but, but you know, the message is, is quite, you know, a strong one. It, it's for people who died for freedom. Your father, Valentina Harris, uh, wasn't Italian, so how did your parents meet? Well, my father was half Irish and half Dutch and a fine, upstanding member of the British Army and, you know, very precise and, uh, and not at all like my wild um, resistance-fighting mother. I mean, the, the, the oddest of unions, really, but they met in Rome. Uh, she was very much you know, working for the Red Cross and, and helping to rehouse abandoned children and all sorts of things were going on. And he was basically with the Allied forces trying to sort out the muddle of, of that immediate post-war period. And um, they fell wildly in love. I mean, absolutely wildly in love. And it caused a tremendous scandal in her very, you know, noble aristocratic family because, you know, he was a divorced Englishman, Protestant, with two children from a previous marriage. I mean, you know, how scandalous can it get? So they were sort of banished 
to go and live out of society's view, I suppose, is the best way to put it. And first, this started on the shores of Lake Como, and then eventually to the house that uh, we all knew of as home in Tuscany. Um, you know, this marriage lasted for, you know, 50-odd years and lots and lots of children. I'm the youngest of six, to explain that. Um, and the reason for the English accent is because my father's business was teaching English as a foreign language. So it was important that we should all sound properly English, of course, to show how, how well the method worked. But also, he would record hours of the BBC World Service for us and shut us in a room and, and make us listen to it. And it was incredibly boring at the time, I have to say. But you can hear, you know, there is no trace of an Italian accent no, there. No. But in Italian, there is no trace of an English accent. So apparently there's only 4% of the population on planet Earth that can do that, that can switch from one language to the other and take humour and sarcasm and irony from one to the other without you knowing that there's any difference. So there you go. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm one of them. <laughs> Who taught you to cook, Valentina Harris? Oh, well, when my parents moved to Tuscany, there were still quite a few sort of Italian uh, ex-soldiers who'd become divided from their platoons, living amongst the ruins of this house. Who'd been there, you know, two, three, four years, you know, just sort of waiting for somebody to tell them what was next. There was no mass communication, so it was a bit tricky to find out. You know, these days, you'd just look at Facebook, but there was nobody to tell them. And my parents arrived to take up residence, and there were all these people. And my father went into immediate you know, an Englishman's home is his castle mode, and threw everybody out, except one man. And this one man was called Bipino, and he was allowed to stay. And I first met Bipino when I was 10 days old and basically was besotted with him completely. And Bipino, before the war, had been a chef at um, the Savini restaurant in the Galleria in Milan. But not only that, he also knew all about planting vines and growing crops and looking after the pig and making grappa. He made incredible grappa. All these things. And as a little girl, I just followed him around. Whenever we were there, <laughs> I just followed him around like a puppy dog and just learnt everything from him. And he taught me everything. And by the time I was... His, his signature dish was the aforementioned risotto. And by the time I was sort of five or six, I was standing on a chair, with him at my ear, stirring away and just learning the rules from him. And, and to this day, I can't make a risotto without hearing his voice in my ear. What was Papino's uh, secret for making the perfect risotto? Um, commitment. You have to be committed to making a risotto. You have to stay with it. You, there's no wandering off. Once you start, you have to see it through to the very end. So if you're not in the mood, don't bother, because, you know, life has far too many disappointments as it is, so there's <laughs> no point bringing another one down upon your head. Um, just make soup or something, because it is 20 minutes of commitment and you have to stay there and love it all the way through. Of course, one of the most important aspects of uh, risotto... Um is the rice and where it's grown and where it comes from, isn't it? It's the variety of rice, yes. I mean, when I was a little girl, 
there were about 40, 45 different varieties. And it was all very specific. You know, the, I would witness these conversations in the kitchen with Bipino and everybody else about, you know, we're making this type of risotto, what kind of rice would be the right one to go with this one? Because for a mushroom a risotto, it would be one type, and for a clam a risotto, for example, it would be a completely different one. So there was all that going on. These days, I think here in the UK, you've got three, Mialone, Nano, Carnaroli and Arborio, and... Um, just depends on on uh, how good you are and how much you know as to which kind of rice you're going to choose. But you're letting me go down that route of boring you to death about risotto now. I don't think you could bore <laughs> me to death about risotto. <laughs> Actually, um, the extraordinary thing, Valentina, is that I think you have managed in your life to combine two childhood ambitions uh, because there's the cooking, but you also wanted to be an actor and, in a way, presenting programmes about cooking requires a bit of that, doesn't it? Absolutely. I wanted to act, I wanted to cook... And I also wanted to write, and and that I'm doing a lot of that these days. I'm 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 trying to write all the stories now before I forget them because there's so many. <laughs> I know the feeling. You ended up in Rome working with another legendary figure in Italian food, Luigi Carnacina. Luigi Carnacina was the man who signed the the diploma that it that hangs on my. On my kitchen wall, yes, it was uh, it was a cookery school that he headed up. What a man! You know, he he was ancient, but but you know, he was absolutely it just he just inspired so much respect. Studying with him and learning all the things I learnt at that cookery school were just so fundamental. It just it, it sort of compounded everything that Bipino had already instilled in me. And it was about skills that, you know, went beyond what he'd taught me, really. I know that my Redeemer lives and ever prays for me. A token of his love he gives, a pledge of
Sorensen is Church of Scotland Minister in Greenock. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his short God Spots, and today he describes John Wesley's grave. John Wesley, the hymn writer, do you know what it says on his grave? It doesn't say died on 2nd of June 1792, I forget the actual date. What it says is gloriously triumphed over death on the 2nd of June 1792. Which made me wonder if that meant they actually died on June the 3rd. However, it is a great epitaph. Gloriously triumphed over death. Well, if that's true, why did they put up a gravestone? Is this one of these claims that you'd get done under the Trades Descriptions Act for? No, it's faith. Faith is saying to others, I believe God. I'm acting as though what he has told me is true. And I'll just carry on until it becomes so, even if I look stupid. Have fun looking stupid today. Unbelievable blessings to you. Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 144. It's followed by My Baby Just Cares For Me by Walter Donaldson, sung by Nina Simone. Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war, and my fingers to fight, my goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I trust, who subdueth my people under me. Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him, or the son of man that thou makest account of him? Man is like to vanity, his days are as a shadow that passeth away. Bow thy heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Cast forth lightning, and scatter them. Shoot out thine arrows, and destroy them. Send thine hand from above. Rid me, and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of strange children whose mouth speaketh vanity and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song unto thee, O God. Upon a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings will I sing praises unto thee. It is he that giveth salvation unto kings, who delivereth David his servant from the hurtful sword. Rid me and deliver me from the hand of strange children whose mouth speaketh vanity and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace, that our garners may be full affording all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labour, that there be no breaking in nor going out, that there be no complaining in our streets. Happy is that people that is in such a case. Yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. My baby don't care for the 
Gentis lives in Kirkmichael and is a member of Pitlochry Baptist Church. Today, Larry and his wife Judy talk about the problems of bringing up the Son of God. Howdy folks, my name is Joseph and i got something to tell you. I'm going to ask you something so strange you may give a start when I ask it. Here goes. What would you do if God was your son? What? You think it's blasphemy to even think about such a thing? Well, if anyone on earth said what I just said and asked the question I'd asked, I'd agree with them. But in my case, well, I'll just have to tell you the story and you make of it what you will. I'll start from the beginning. I was going to marry this woman named Mary that I'd been sweet on since I was a boy. And to my surprise, her family said yes. So I started building the house on our property, as is our custom. And when it was ready, I'd marry Mary. And that's that. However, there was a itsy-bitsy little problem that happened. She got pregnant. Obviously, I wasn't going to marry her, but I wasn't going to hurt her either. I was going to put her away quietly so she didn't have to be ashamed. Yes, I was mad at her, but I didn't want to hurt her. I'm just not made that way. Something else happened to change my mind, though. One night I had a dream that an angel of the Lord appeared to me, telling me that the child Mary was pregnant with came from the Holy Spirit of God, and she hadn't betrayed me at all. God wanted me to take Mary as my wife. It wasn't a normal-like dream. It was kind of, that was hazy, funny, fuzzy-like, but it was real, crystal clear, and, well, really real. Can't explain it, but I just knew in my heart that I was supposed to do this. So I married her. And I won't repeat everything else that happened, you know, like the birth and the cattle manger, the three kings and their gifts, the circumcision in the temple, and how we had to get out of there quick and in a hurry to Egypt. Want to talk about something else this time, so I'll repeat my question that disturbed you so much. What would you do if God was your son? Don't laugh, I'm serious. Remember that the angel of the Lord told me that the child in Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God, that he was God's Messiah or himself in the flesh. Now, I'm going to be clear about something. I'm not Jesus' biological father. It wasn't me that made Mary pregnant. It was the Holy Spirit. However, once Jesus was born, who was the one that had the job of raising Jesus, showing him how to do the stuff in the carpentry shop, sending him to the madrasa, that's our school, you know, where they learn the Torah, and generally just being a father to him. Well, it was me. So in that sense, God was my son. I understand how strange this sounds. How did I do it? How do you be a father to God? Well, I kept contact with the real father of Jesus. I'll give you an example of what this looks like on the ground. Somebody wrote the story down, so I'll go get Mary. She reads better than me. Mary, Mary, could you come read something for me, please? Okay. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days required, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. Instead, they thought that he was somewhere in the caravan. And they went a day's journey. And then they began to look for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of all the teachers, both listening to him 
and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When Joseph and Mary saw him, they were bewildered. And Mary, his mother, said, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And yet they, on their part, did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued to be subject to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. Thanks, Mary. You, you read powerful good. So there you have it. You might think Mary and I was careless not looking for Jesus before we set off for home, but we just thought he was with some uncles or cousins or something. Also, from a real young age, Jesus kind of knew how to look after himself. Oh, he was all boy, playful and all, but he was never foolhardy or careless. Then Mary and I had to go through our parents' worst nightmare for three days, and I can't describe the relief when we finally found him with the teachers in the temple. So I'm going to answer my own question, because there's no way you could. I'm the only one who's ever had this honor, to be a father to Jesus. And here's what I did. Well, I just did the best I could. <laughs>